I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, we're talking to Emily Schultz, all about her brand new novel, Little Threats. It's set in the 1990s, uh, and it follows twin sisters in an age of rebellion, when a night of partying goes too far and ends in murder. We talk about the tricks that she used to get herself in a 90s mood. Also, how she kind of twisted the genre when she realised what this story was actually meant to be. And we discuss how she tackles the first draft and whether she wants to change the way she does it at all. I think that I'm a fast and sloppy writer on first draft, and I'm just going to accept that about myself. Um, you know, But I think there are certainly some writers that, that do get better at first draft and that take more time with it. You know, But uh, for me, it's kind of like once I find my rhythm, I have to keep it up and um, in order to get through it. Like I might spend, um, you know, so for instance, I'm writing a new novel now and I'm not as far into it as I want to be. I got that writing office and then I didn't, I didn't write enough. Uh, you know, I might spend a year on the first 50 pages and then, like I say, finish something in two months. There's more on the way with Emily Schultz in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome to the show. This is Writer's Routine, the show that does what it says on the tin. We take a look inside the daily lives of some of the world's best authors uh, to find out how they juggle everything, how they juggle work, how they juggle play, how they juggle family time, how they juggle chores, all of that, uh, and they get the story done. They get that writing done. Now, this week's episode of the show uh, is sponsored by the Script Sirens a female and non-binary script writing group from the West Midlands in the UK. Now, I said this last week when they supported us as well, but it does need to be repeated. I think in the middle of a lockdown and a global pandemic, when politically everything's a bit divided, I think any chances to get involved and create communities is fantastic. It's a brilliant idea to bring people together with, with a shared passion, with a common goal, and the script sirens are doing just that. Their founder, Scarlett Kefford, was nominated for an RTS award for Breakthrough last year. It all started after she sampled a few writing groups and, and wasn't made to feel too comfortable, so she set up her own to share ideas, to give feedback, and to come up with ways that they could showcase their writing. They had hoped to book out a theatre to uh, pr- present their work in front of uh, a lot of powerful people, And then 2020 happened, they couldn't do that, 
so they've created something new. They've done what they've done best. They've done what they know best. Uh, they've wrote in a different form for a different format. It's a fantastic six-part horror audio series called Siren Screams. They're between 10 and 20 minutes long, which is a nice length of brilliant and, and quite terrifying storytelling. And it's not just stuff that is standardly and classically scary. All of the writers of these, they've picked things that are terrifying to them. Personal, personal things. And they've twisted them into tales that I really think you'll enjoy. Now, we're chatting to Scarlett, the founder, later on in the show. And she'll tell us more about those episodes then and how they've been worked on. Now, the episodes have all been voiced by brilliant actors based out of the West Midlands. So there's a fantastically rich character to the voices. If you like your horror, uh, stick one of these on. It will cost you nothing. They're all as a podcast, so you can probably listen wherever you're doing this now. Do it after, though. Listen to us first. Then search out Siren Screams. They're on Spotify, Acast, Google, loads more. Have a listen. They are fantastically written and support Script Sirens, the female and non-binary scriptwriting group. As I say, you can hear from Charlotte uh, a little later on at the end of the episode. Before that, let's get into today's guest, Emily Schultz. Her brand new novel is Little Threats. It comes after her hugely successful previous book, The Blondes. Now, we talk about her sloppy first draft, as you heard, and, and why she's fine with that. Also about how, how she manages writing in pretty much the family room, where she's got a lot going on. Sometimes PlayStation's happening all around her as well. Uh, and we chat about where the idea for Little Threats came from and how she got herself into a 90s frame of mind. It's all about the summer of 1993, where twin sisters Kennedy and Carter Wynn are getting fully into the grunge era, and are kind of testing every limit of their pretty privileged Richmond suburb. Uh, but then it all goes wrong. The teenage rebellion goes a little bit too far. Uh, Kennedy's does. After a night of partying in the woods, her best friend Haley is murdered, and suspicion quickly falls on Kennedy. It's all about what you remember, what you hope to forget, and how the mind can twist itself inside out. Uh, I had a lovely time with Emily, uh, and I think it's a brilliant chat. I really hope you enjoy it. We start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, the place that I sit down to write is actually my main room. Um, I'm in a railroad apartment in Brooklyn, and I have a family. I have a, a partner slash husband and a child who's nine years old. He's on the autism spectrum. So our, our main room here that I'm sitting in front of is, it's, it's, it's my desk. It's our dining room table. There's a vintage movie poster with Gene Hackman and the conversation right above me. And, uh, you know, Brooklyn apartments are small. So kind of everything happens in this room. And, <laughs> you know, we live in this room. My child comes into this room. He does PlayStation here. And I write anyway, somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> so what is there around you apart from the, the, the movie poster? That kind of lets you know that this is a space where you can be creative as well. If you've got your son on the, on the PlayStation, if you've got like everything going on, is there anything there that just helps you tap into that creative bubble? Uh, well, you know what? It helps when he's at school. I'll say that. But <laughs> um, really, after after living, he's nine years old. So after living with a rambunctious ADHD child for nine years, I tapping in really is about putting some headphones in and just going into my mind. And I, I do that almost anywhere. So it might be in this main room, it might be I'll sneak off to the bedroom, but 
I find that if I want to write, I can write. And if I'm stopping myself, it's me that's stopping myself, not the people around me. So that's interesting. If you want to write, you can write. It's it's from what I've learned doing this show, chatting to so many authors that that the the skill is, as you know, come on, that it's writing when you don't want to write. What are you? Um, how do you help that that happen? How good are you at making yourself write when maybe you really just can't be bothered that day? Uh, you know, I will be honest, my partner tisks me a lot and says, you have to get it done. And, um, for me, once I've popped the screen open and I've gotten a couple pages in, or maybe I've gone over the last few pages that I wrote, I find it very easy. It's like diving into a pool and I just go in and I stay in the water. (laughs) Um, but I mean, having deadlines also helps. Um, I'm, I'm a writer that I tend to write very quickly once I'm writing. And so if I give myself a deadline, I really can adhere to it. Um, You know, I try to clear time in my schedule so that I'm not doing my other paid gigs and just working on the novel. Um, If it's not going well, then what I find is um, uh, coming back out for a little while and reading something by someone else can help um, kind of plunge me back in again, because I think there's so much that we take away from other people's writing um, and, sometimes we're inspired by it. Other times it's more like, I see what you're doing there and I would do it this way. And that can also kind of spur me back to my own work. Now, this might seem incredibly niche and and geeky, but that's kind of what it's about. Are you on your laptop? Are you on on a writing software? Is it Word? Talk me through that setup. I just use Word and I'm on a laptop. That's why I might move around from one room to the other. Uh, For a little while, I had a writing office, which was nice, but then coronavirus shut that down. So, you know, I'm back to working in the family space again. Um, So you would you would go out, you would go somewhere else to write? Occasionally I did. Yeah. For about a year, I was able to have an office outside the home and it was just a tiny little cubicle. Uh, But most of my books I've written in this home, you know, including including this one, Little Threats. Um, Most of the time I'm working here. Wow. What, What did writing in your own space Uh, in the little cubicle what did that give you how did that affect kind of your energy with the way you tell stories um well you're right it did mean that I could block everything else out so I would just put my headphones in there as well and uh, listen to some music and I would say that I did maybe do um in an hour the writing that I did was maybe what I would do at home over a course of like two or three hours it could be more concentrated when I was in my little cubicle and now if you thought that was a bit geeky, font chat. Do you have any? Uh, do you have any big opinions on the fonts that you write in? No, they just have to be clear. Um, I mean, usually it's going to be uh, Times New Roman or Garamond. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And I mean, I do still like longhand. I write a lot of notes for myself in longhand, and I like to keep a, a journal, a diary, um, which is not really character sketches or you know fiction details. It's usually just my life and me kind of sorting out you know the detritus of the day um you know writing a record for myself of what I worked on or what happened in my life so if you're doing that what well, why do you write that way what why are you writing a journal in longhand um because it's more personal but I guess that's it is when I'm when I'm writing a novel or when I'm writing fiction it is work it is work to me so I guess you know and it, it also it's easier to to type it because then I already have it in one document at the ready, ready to send it at any moment. Not that I'm not that I'm going to in first draft. Um, well, listen, Emily, the show is writer's routine. Uh, will you talk us through yours? So the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down 
to write when you are, as you say, working. Um, how does it look? Talk me through the whole thing. Uh, too much coffee. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I get up and let's say, let's say it's a day that my, that my son is in school. Um, I might start the day with a jog. I love to jog. Um, being physically active really helps my mood. And I think it's really important for writers because if you sit all the time, uh, it's too easy to let your body go to waste and you get depressed, you know? Um, so it, it buoys me up. And, um, so I'll do like a good two mile jog and then come back, have my, my shower and my coffee and get to work. And so, by that time, it's just me and the screen. Um, I, if I'm really seriously writing, I'll put a social media blocker on. Um, and by seriously writing, I mean like I'm trying to get it done. I'm trying to just stay in the zone. Um, and I find that very helpful. But I mean, I do still pull out, you know, to take breaks and check my email. Um, I, have, I have other duties, certainly. Um, I tend to make a fair bit of my rent money from editing work that I get freelance editing, editing other people's stories and other people's books. Um, and that's something that I also enjoy. I like being able to kind of coach people along and, you know, get to participate in their successes as well. If I'm writing, I really don't want to pull out, but sometimes I have to because of, like I said, because of other deadlines, because of other work obligations, really um, when I'm writing a, a novel and I'm in it, you know, I'm really in it. Um, so, you know, uh, both of my novels, um, The Blondes and Little Threats are the ones that people know. And both of those I wrote very, very quickly. So The Blondes, for instance, I, I wasn't in my regular space. I went to uh, the Mojave Desert and rented a little cabin there and wrote most of it in three weeks. Uh, little threats, a lot of it tumbled out of me in the aftermath of Me Too. Um, and it just came. Um, you know, we were all looking at our relationships and our pasts. And so it just made sense for me to sit down and make a fictional story that examines some of those things. And so I think I wrote the first draft in about eight weeks and then had to rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I do a lot of rewriting, like over a period of years. But I mean, when I say I'm in it, that's the kind of thing I mean is I might, I might sit down at nine in the morning and, you know, um, not get back up until four in the afternoon, um, except to go pee because of all the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's on, on, I would imagine, quite a dream day. If you're starting to, after your, your jog, if you're starting to work at about nine, what time do you tend to find yourself kind of losing the thread, losing your energy through the day? Probably two. If I start at nine, probably two, I'm going to start losing my energy, which is maybe a good time for a break. Um, one thing that I really try not to do is I, tr I try not to write at night. Um, for years, I, like as a young writer, I suffered from insomnia and I think it was not, I think it was not the coffee. I think it was, um, having my brain going too late into the evening. And so I really try not to write past 8 PM every once in a while, you know, what happens is you get almost addicted to it and you get dragged back in, even when you set it aside, uh, when it's going well. And, you know, occasionally I will wind up going back in and writing a scene at like 10 at night or something, but I really have to stop myself from doing that because insomnia can be a terrible cycle. And, um, you know, I just like the jogging. I don't do it anymore. I, I spend a lot of time making sure that I don't uh, become uh, too manic or depressed. And I think that those are, are constant battles for writers. I mean, a lot of writers suffer from those things. And I think it's because we're just thinking all the time. Our brains are just going. Uh has that has that affected it though in in a negative way? This idea that you're you're trying to stop yourself thinking, 
how much was there a time where you're stopping writing late and maybe you feel the negative effect on that on your writing because you're not doing as much as it of it as you once had um I think for me it's more you know it's hard once I've started I'm pretty I at this point in my life I, I'm in my 40s you know I have a lot more you know moderation and self-control but at this point in my life if I stop I'm usually pretty good with having stopped and then I can start again I mean the main thing I think is confidence and you have to feel confident in order to make the writing happen and so part of that is giving yourself permission to write something terrible um, and I'm just I've published enough now that I can say well it's going to be terrible at first, but I'll make it better. With the the editing that you said you would do, you 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 help other people out editing. Um, how how does how good does that make you analyzing your own work as you are doing it? Well, you know, I would like to say that it makes me better, but I still need outside help. I mean, I still need a lot of suggestions from my from my literary agent and my editor. Um, but certainly, I've, it means I've I've read a lot of raw work. And so it also helps me approach my own work when it's raw and I can say, well, I see what I'm doing here and where I'm going with it. And I probably need to shape it a little more. Um, you know, so I'm just, I'm more aware that it's not genius the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you're happy to overwrite. Yeah. You're happy to write and write and then having to cut it down. Yeah. I drag my feet a little, like even with myself, right. Even when I'm making myself do it, I do drag my feet a little. I'm not, I'm not any better at being edited than somebody else. Um, but I know that it's part of the process. And I know that an editor is, you know, always on your side, and they're only trying to help you make the work better. Well, I've, well I'm, I've, I've been thinking about recently when I chat to writers, um, who are happy, you know, who have to be edited and are fine to overwrite, are fine to finally get the one that they send in to be like their third or fourth draft. And especially someone like you, who is who has published before, I'm wondering, and this might sound aggressive, it doesn't mean to, um, it's just, why aren't, right? why don't you kind of get better at getting it right the first time, I guess? I think some writers do, actually, but I don't think I'm one of them. I think that I'm a fast and sloppy writer on first draft, and I'm just going to accept that about myself, um, you know, but I think there are certainly some writers that, that do get better at first draft and that take more time with it, you know, but uh, for me, it's kind of like, once I find my rhythm, I have to keep it up and um, in order to get through it. Like I might spend, um, you know, so for instance, I'm writing a new novel now and I'm not as far into it as I want to be. I got that writing office and then I didn't, I didn't write enough. Uh, you know, I might spend a year on the first 50 pages and then, like I say, finish something in two months. Um, but I think there are some writers who maybe, you know, they're exact about every single word they put put down. For me, if I'm exact about every single word I put down, sometimes I don't get the whole structure or the whole idea. I don't fully realize it. Um, so that's why I'm just going to accept the fact that I'm kind of an instinctual writer and that I go, you know, I go quick and then I rewrite. <laughs> why do you think it's happening like that? As you say, maybe it might take you a while to get the first 50 pages down, but then the rest can come as this this torrent of, of words and you know when you lock yourself away in the Mojave Desert and you get a book down in in three weeks or something ludicrous why why is it coming out like that in this in this almost like a, a broken erratic tap style of writing um I think for me it's that by the time I get past the first 50 pages I have some sense of 
who the characters are and what I want to do with them. Um, and what the ideas are that I want to explore. It just, it takes me that long to figure out where I'm going. It's kind of like, I'm, you know, I'm just looking at the landscape like a tourist. And then suddenly I know the landscape and I live there. Let me take you back to the writing day. How much are you hoping to get done? I don't have those goals. Um, it's more, you know, um, one scene follows on another scene. And so I just write one scene and then when I finish it or feel that it's finished, then I go on to the next scene. And I often don't know what the next scene will be until I get there. So how much do you know about what you are going to write on that day? Are you thinking about, I mean, obviously this is perhaps not because, um, you're trying to push yourself away from insomnia, but have you been kind of, has, has, is what's happening the next day? Has it been percolating throughout the night? Oh, no, for me, no, often not. Although I say that, but when I run, oftentimes I will come up with ideas while I'm running. I don't know what it is about, um, you know, being in motions as sometimes help me find the next thing that I'm looking for. Um, I think oftentimes I will know kind of what my beginning, middle and end are going to be to something long, like a novel. Um, but how I'm going to get there, I don't know. And then there are little surprises along the way. Um, like, um, what can I, what can I say without giving too much away? Um, you know, uh, suddenly there's a ghost and I'm like, what, how come there's a ghost in this story? But sometimes it works. You know what I mean? Like, I really believe in writers kind of following their intuition. I know there are a lot of writers who do plan everything beat by beat and all respect to them. Uh, if it works for them, fantastic. But I think there are other writers like myself who, just have a more organic way of letting a story happen. And to me, it's almost like placing one foot after the other. This is what the character would do in this situation. So I follow them and I see what they do. Um, and, and I don't think that any one way of writing is better than the other. So I don't have goals with my writing. Um, I just want to see where the story, where the story goes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Script Sirens presents Siren Screams. 
a six-part horror anthology series performed as audio plays. These hair-raising tales are not for the faint-hearted. You have been warned. Burn while reciting the following text. Omnis incursio infernalis adversari. Are, are you okay? Hey, oh my God, um, I'm, I'm calling an ambulance. Life for life, life for life, life for life, life for life. I wonder what this bit is. Oh no, my dress. You visit the empty and the dark and the abandoned and the old because they do not scare you. Everything else does. I think you'll like it here. Now this week's episode is supported by the Script Sirens and their new audio horror series, the teaser of which you just heard, uh, Siren Screams. And we will chat to the founder of the group, Scarlett Kefford, in a little bit. If you would like your book to support the show and sponsor us, by the way, um, we can get that done. We've got some gaps in um, towards the end of February and March. You just need to support us on Patreon. Uh, if your book launch was kind of a dab squib because of everything in 2020, uh, if you want everyone to know about the thing that you have worked so hard on, I can help you out with that. I'll give it a big old plug, give it a huge shout out, get to it on the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You don't have to go big time with the sponsorship either. You can get thanks, you can get some merch. If you've learned anything along the way over over 120 episodes now, which has really helped the way that you write, the way that you get ideas and plan your day. Um, you can support us with just a dollar or so a month on Patreon to say thanks for that. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Emily Schultz talking about her new novel, Little Threats, about the twin sisters in a state of rebellion who go out partying and then things turn seriously wrong. In this half, we talk about how she plays with and thrashes around the initial idea before finally writing it down. We talk about how aware she is of the audience and how that has changed over time. Uh, and we pick things up talking about the thread of the story and how much she keeps on that line or whether she wavers at all and goes down a different path with the characters. Occasionally it does deviate. That's true. Um but I mean, my feeling is that we all know what story is. We're taught it from a young age because our parents read to us and then we're taught to read. Um, but we also, we know it because people talk in stories. Everybody tells each other little anecdotes throughout the day. Um, and so I feel like we intuitively know what story is. And that's why I'm willing to, to just follow it and see where it goes. Um, is because I think that there's a part of me that knows better than, than my conscious part what the story is and what it needs to be. Now, lastly on the day, before we get into the work, uh, I, I know that you, you know, you're writing when you can, where you can, with a lot of other things going on around you. Is uh, Apart from the headphones, or maybe it's what's being played through the headphones, is there something that you just kind of need, apart from loads of coffee as well, that just help, helps the day run easily for you, helps you get those words down? You know, I mean, a good view helps, right? Um, when I was in my little cubicle, I did not have a great view. Um, now I have a nice view here at my at my you know kitchen table of you know the the tree outside my window. We're on the third floor. Um, when I was in the desert, certainly having that view helped. Um, but really, I mean, what gets you through is is 
you're kind of going back into your mind. Um, you know, I think that we draw on all the things that we've taken in in our lives. So, I mean, I watch a lot of films, uh, you know, listen to a lot of music, as you said, and, and all of that stuff is about mood and tone. And I, that's something I think that really helps with writing is you're also trying to capture a mood or a tone in anything that you write. Um, so you're just kind of drawing, I'm drawing on all those, those memories of all that other cultural input all the time. Music wise, what are you listening to when you write? Well, so with this book, I mostly listen to, uh, hits from the nineties. So, you know, I was listening to, uh, The Cure and <laughs> Radiohead and Tori Amos and stuff like that, because this book is set in the nineties, but I mean, any, any number of things might be on my playlist. And sometimes it's, if I'm listening to Spotify or YouTube, it's whatever, whatever they happen to throw into my feed. Um, but you know, other times I put the headphones in and I don't put music on, I just put the headphones in to kind of block out the world and I'll be sitting there with earbuds in my ears for like an hour before I realize, oh, I didn't even put music on, but it, it does kind of help me focus. And the words don't distract you? Um, sometimes. And then I just switch it, you know, I'll switch to, to something else. I'm interested about the meat, like the, uh, the time frame of the music, this this book, Little Threats, it's set in 1993. So you're listening to a lot of music around at the time. Um, <clears throat> I guess it's probably a ridiculously stupid question, but could you listen to you know, music from the noughties and be writing about the 90s? Or would that completely throw your sense of place off course? Oh, no, I loved listening to music from the 90s while I was writing this. And um, but I mean, I didn't always like I was listening to like Sharon, uh, Sharon Van Etten and um other new stuff as well. Um, what else? Uh, Le Butcherette is a um, female musician I really like. I mean, so I was listening to, to both 90s and contemporary stuff. Now, the book is Little Threat. Um, tell us, you've kind of hinted about this with, uh, with it coming off the back of Me Too, but tell us about the very first moment that the idea for what became this story popped into your head. Uh, what were you doing? How did it present itself? Uh, you know, I think actually that I was, this is going to sound really cheesy, but I think I was watching television. I was watching a crime show and uh, I was watching um, a crime show where it became apparent that a group of girls had committed the murder. And, you know, I said to my partner, a girl did it. And he said, how do you know that? And I said, I just know they took her hair, they cut her hair, a girl did it. And, uh, that was, in some ways that is the first, uh, image in the book, um, is, you know, uh, Kennedy finds her best friend laying in the woods and she's, she's been stabbed and Kennedy combs her hair and cuts a lock of her hair to take away as, as a memory or a souvenir. And, um, so that, that was really the first image. Um, in terms of the me too, though, that came later. So, I mean, I had the idea for, twin sisters and one of them has committed a crime and she goes away for it. Um, but doesn't really know whether she committed it or not. And the other sister is also trying to decide whether her twin did commit this murder. Um, the me too element came in when I decided to introduce an older boyfriend for the girls. And so that, I mean, this is something I think depending on your age, when I was 16, it was really common, you know, to have like a college boyfriend or date someone who was older, 21, 22, and so once I gave that to the, the, the sister Kennedy, um, I knew how to write this book. You know, I know what it's like to be a 16 year old girl who's just massively in love with someone who truthfully does not deserve your trust or love. 
and you know to have a, a person in your life who's a predatory figure, um, but who you also have a deep effect, affection for. And so you Me Too happened, and I think a lot of us were looking back at our lives and inappropriate relationships. And um, I just decided to draw on that experience for this novel, and that was when it kind of came tumbling out. So the two, the two separate, I guess, part of, parts of the story there, and you've got this thing that you know because of the you, you've imagined because of the crime show. Then you've got what comes later with the with the Me Too. Were you always looking for something else to put in the story um, after you came up with the crime element of it, uh, or? Did the Me Too thing come along, the older boyfriend, and then it just fit? It just felt right? Yeah, it did. It fit. It felt right. At first, I resisted doing it because, um, it's a, you know, I mean, it's a part of my life that I don't like to look at. I like to think that I'm always in control and that I have been my whole life. And, uh, you know, um, and um, you know, most people don't want to see themselves as, as victims in any way. And I wasn't because it was a consensual relationship. Um but at the same time, once once I started to write that character and, and you know, truly I did write him similarly to a person in my life. Um, once I started to write that character, I just understood also who the twins in this novel were, which is that they're they're young girls and they think they're in control. And, you know, Kennedy in particular is very rebellious and she's trying everything out. You know, she's she's dropping LSD and going to concerts and partying with these older boys. And her, her friend Haley is along for this. And the other twin, Carter, is a little more reticent. And it was a way to express my own feelings in terms of I am both Kennedy and Carter. Um, so I'm the twin who's saying, don't do that. Be more sensible. That's a bad idea. That person doesn't really love you. And I can also be the, the twin who is saying, oh, this is the best thing in the world. I feel, you know, like I've just found a new life at the age of 16. <laughs> For a while, I'm just thrashing around with it, like I said. And then, you know, eventually it gets kind of pinned down. Um, so I think when I first started writing, and I don't want to give too much away, but when I first started writing, I thought I'll write a story of redemption, someone who goes into prison and serves her time and then comes out and is a changed person and, you know, has to fit back into society. That would be, I think, the literary version of this novel. And when I started it, I thought that might be the case. But then, of course, as I got going, I thought, well, what if we don't know? What if we don't know whether she committed the crime? What if she herself doesn't know? Um, you know, because she was high and she has, you know, a blackout in her, you know, in that, that evening that the crime took place. Um, and then it actually became a little more interesting to me in terms of I could have different characters think she did it. I could have her own perception of whether she did or not change throughout the novel. Um, it became more of a mystery at that point, you know, and I have um, there are different characters who are bringing in different pieces of information. So, I mean, you would think that this is a crime that happened, you know, in 1993. It's all solved. It's all in the past. But then I wanted people to come back in and say, well, maybe it isn't, you know, the same way that, you um, we have old crimes now that are being solved. Um, like, um, I'll be gone in the dark. Um, the, um, the Michelle McNamara book, um, was, it's really interesting to see that, uh, an old crime where suddenly DNA comes back in again and, and all these old cases are solved. Um, so I decided to have a television crime show host 
come to their city and is going to make an episode uh, on television about that particular crime. And then all these new things come to light. Um, but it was also just a way to work with the characters and what each of them thinks happens and um, and where they are in their own lives. It's interesting you say you know you say you th- you're thrashing this around in your mind and then you're asking yourself uh, questions which can help you figure it out uh, it leads me to wonder um how much do you think that that is really what storytelling's about it it's about having this one idea and then asking yourselves a lot of questions to make this idea worse or maybe try and solve it after all um well I, yeah i mean i think what happens i mean for me as a novelist is i don't I don't really know if it works until I finish it. And even then, sometimes I'm not sure if it works. Um, I'm feeling like this one works. You know, I'm, I, it's, it's out now. It's printed. I'm holding it in my hands and uh, it's getting reviews. And I'm like, yeah, I think it works. Um, what do you mean by works? Sorry to in- interrupt. What do you mean by works? I mean that I think that the story holds together and it hangs together and the characters' motivations make sense and the way that they interact makes sense. I mean, Writing a, writing a novel is, is like a delicate dance. And, you know, um, while you're writing it, it can feel like a mess. But then if you step back and you're in the audience, uh, you know, you can, you can see the choreography. I like that. I like that analogy a lot. Let me ask you about words on the page. I'm very fascinated by words and the fact that they all come tumbling out of you. Might, an- might, might answer this question for me. But how much do you think about the next word that is coming? As in whether that word suits your character's voice. I mean, hopefully it would do, but also whether that word's been used before, how novel that word is. How much do you give thought do you give to that? Um, yeah, I, I think that I think that probably I have a tendency to rely on certain words over others. And that's one of those things that when I go back and re-edit, I'll make sure that I'm not using the same word a bunch of times. Um, my, my partner, Brian, always says that I use the word blur or blear, bleary. He says, I use those two words a lot. (laughs) So obviously for some reason, those words like, you know, stick with me and they wind up in scenes too many times. Um, But I mean, I don't know how conscious I am of it. I mean, sometimes it just feels like the words come, you know what I mean? Like almost like they're summoned, almost like, you know, almost like a ghost and they wind up on the page somehow. Intent always fascinates me uh, when I'm chatting to writers, um, <clears throat> as in, what was the purpose for you writing this story? Is it, is, it, is it kind of innate in you that you've got this thing that you just want to get on a page and it just so happens that someone wants to pay you money and publish it? Or are you, are you considering the whole way through, this will be read by a reader, I'm doing this because I want to give them some entertainment and some escapism? Yes, I think all those things. I mean, so because I started my career in Canada and then moved to the US, I have some books that are only published in Canada and some that are available all over. Um, And, you know, certainly um, there were, my writing was more experimental and more for me when I was younger. And now I am more aware of audience. So, you know, to me, this started as a literary book. And then I realized that if I took the mystery that was in it and brought it to the fore and didn't let the mystery start halfway through the book, um, you know, that I could make it, a, I could make it a more marketable book and I could make it, you know, for a bigger audience. Um, so there was that, but there wasn't that like when I just sat down to write it, you know what I'm saying? That's what comes for me on the rewrite. 
And it's more about spreading the information out throughout the book. So for instance, when I finished the first draft, um, when I finished the first draft, I think if you want to call them clues, all my clues were in the back half of the book. And my editor actually made a list for me and said, this is your physical evidence. And here's the list of all the physical evidence. And here's where it appears. And she was right. It's like it all appeared halfway through the book. And she said, so can you move some of this physical evidence up into like, you know, the first few chapters? Um, because then the reader will know that they're getting, you know, a thriller, a literary thriller, but a thriller. And I was like, oh, that makes complete and total sense. But it just took me that long to get going. You know what I mean? Or to admit that I was maybe to admit to myself that I was writing something that was a little more of a thriller. What other concessions, as well as spreading the clues out, are you making um, for when you're writing genre? What, 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 what else are you doing to keep the readers engaged that maybe you wouldn't be doing if you were writing um, an experimental, more literary style of novel? That's a hard question. Um, I don't know if I really know the answer to that. I mean, I guess I would say you want it to be faster paced. Um, but at the same time, I still get reviews. I'm always being called slow burn. So I know I'm not going fast enough yet. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you spend much time uh, caring about reviews? Uh, I read them if they're good. And uh, if they're not, then I try not to because I don't want to lose my confidence. <laughs> I think. So, I mean, sometimes my partner will screen them ahead of, ahead of time. And tell me, tell me, read that, read it or don't read it. I think I once spoke to a very famous British author who's sold 275 like million copies. It's unreal. Um, and almost while we were chatting in the middle of the conversation, he was checking the Amazon reviews. Oh, no, <laughs> no, I would never do that. No, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That, that you're, I, you've sold that many and you're still so focused about what, what they want to read. No, I mean, but I think it can be helpful. I mean, I have looked at my Goodreads reviews and sometimes people have really helpful suggestions, you know, um, and I, I do try to, you know, if, if it's something that I've read and I think it's a valid criticism, I will try to remember it for next time. Like, um, give the audience what they want. You know what I mean? Like, I used to always make these really oblique endings. And now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, no, I can make an ending that like, you know, sews everything up and that's okay you know it doesn't have to be uh an abstract ending like it's a french film or something uh to be a good ending so i mean i have learned a few things from from reading goodreads reviews and i mean talking of reviews talking about um uh, success and acclaim i know that you you published in canada before but um listeners to this podcast will probably know you from um well the blondes which was like incredibly successful um you know, lauded by Stephen King and with all sorts. When you get that much acclaim, that much success for a book, how much does it affect the way you think about writing your next one? You know, I think every book is different, actually. I mean, the only thing that I think it does is it makes you feel confident that you can write and it makes you excited to try to make another thing that will find that audience. I mean, it's really exciting to think about the people that I don't know, that I don't personally know, who went out and bought my book and read it and recommended it to their friends. That's really exciting. Um, but every book is different. And so every book has its own challenges. So it, it's not like, you know, I mean, I think that writers, our heads swell a little bit while we're um, getting all this publicity and stuff like that. But then you go away and you just have your regular life and nobody knows who you are when you go to the grocery store. It's not like being a pop star or something. Um, and so you just have to keep doing the work. 
and um, and every work is different and it's challenging in its own way. So just because one novel is successful doesn't mean the next one will be. In fact, I mean, you can write a whole novel and not have it get published even after a really good success. Um, so you just keep doing it. You just keep working. You just keep working. Massive thank you to Emily for coming on the show. Uh, Emily Schultz, her new book is Little Threads. You can grab a copy now using the link in the episode notes below. And it's over at writersroutine.com as well. Now, this episode of the show is supported by Script Sirens and their brilliant new audio series, Siren Screams. Uh, Script Sirens was set up by Scarlett Kefford in 2019 to give female and non-binary writers an encouraging, safe space to work, to tell stories and to share ideas. Uh, And I caught up with Scarlett the other day to chat to her about the group and the horror project that they've worked on. It's a new audio series called Siren Screams. And I began the chat by asking her why she started the script Sirens. It was a case of um, there was a, a fantastic uh, woman who very much involved in this sort of TV and creative industry. She's an ex-exec producer and she also does teaching and she's running um, like runs a lot of projects for the West Midlands-based uh, governmental stuff. And her, na- um, her name's Caroline Officer. And uh, like she was the exec producer on Ready City Cook years ago. And I was just moaning to her one day when she was doing some um, career mentoring with me that every time I'd been to a writer's group in the area, I'd found it to be essentially not very friendly, to put it mildly. I mean, there's quite different ones. I, I felt that at the different ones, they were very, very... Um, male orientated and older male orientated and very straight orientated and being in that space um, and there's quite a few there's, a, there's quite a few that I've been to as well so I'm not calling anyone particularly out but I found that I was either um at, you know sort of at the lighter end at the lighter end it was just uh my writing wasn't really understood um by people who were you know so generationally and gender and just a whole host of things which felt like we were disconnected um like I remember there was one piece which was sort of very it was I mean it, oh, I hate to be like oh women always talk about periods but I'd written a um I'd written a comedy about a female serial killer and at one point um she's having a problem where she's um you know she's murdered somebody and there was blood everywhere and uh, she's trying to clean it up and anything she can find is like sanitary towels and she's trying to do that every every um you know female you know, reader I'd had on it or people I talked about it, it they, they found it very funny. Um, but this group said, oh, they didn't, they're just very, very like, oh, it's disgusting. It's not going to be appropriate. It's not very nice. And I was just like, what century are you living in? Um, and then, so that was sort of the, the misunderstanding, misunderstanding was one end. And then on the other end, there was um, because of my age, I felt a lot of the time um, I was being sort of spoken down to or condescended and that wasn't fun and then right on the other end of the schedule there was the um like um slight harassment in groups so um just it's like generally uncomfortable some people just being a bit pervy or a bit inappropriate or just look you know like catching someone looking at parts of your body when you're trying to talk about writing is not really what I wanted so I, I didn't feel like there was any space that I could really um grow or evolve in and I was moaning about that I said I'll like where all the and also the fact that I've been to several networking events and every single time I was like well, I've been told oh 
well, we can't find any female writers. We can't find any women writers. We can't really find any non-white male writers. And I was just like, well, there's got to be loads. There's got to be loads of them. I was just like, I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm here. I've never been connected with, any, with anybody in. This was specifically in the Midlands, and as, as Midlands and sort of more specifically the West Midlands anyway. And I just thought to myself, I, yeah, I was moaning. And Caroline said, well, do it yourself. You can do this. I very much think you can and then it was between her and another woman called Alison Grade as well who um she's she's written a book called the freelance bible which is very helpful for if you're in sort of any kind of media or creative career or any freelance career initially it was only going to be sort of you know a place for people to meet up and um you know share writing with each other peer-to-peer feedback and maybe a bit of career support but it's really really grown when you start a new writing group um, for uh, you know a targeted type of person in mind um, because you don't like other ones that you've been to. When you've got carte blanche to kind of do what you want, what I, I guess what mission statements did you set script sirens up with? Like it, it, you knew what you did not want it to be, but what did you want it to be? Um, but initially, as I say, initially it was a space where I wanted um, to... I mean, there's a lot of Facebook groups and things like that, but I wanted it to be more local and more personal um, where you could meet up and say, hey, I know a space of uh, here that people who will read and feedback on my work and I will do the same thing for them. So, um, so I could go, so, you know, that sort of guilt, that sort of, um, oh, who am I buggy again to read my latest thing or run uh, ideas for log lines post or how do I sum this up or you know think about this would this character do this and you want someone who can talk about it for it and not feel like you're burdening one this sort of agreement there is that you come and you place you play you sort of initially it was just gonna be a Facebook I wanted it to sort of be a, a monthly meetup group and a Facebook group where you can put reading on and open it up to the group and everybody everybody read it and feedback as and when they'd like to with the expectation of the more you do for other people, the more they'll likely um, give you back. Um, And so that was the sort of primary aim. It was about the peer-to-peer feedback. Um, But the second thing was this career support. So that argument I'd had with people, uh, several people at uh, networking events that, oh, there aren't any, there aren't any female rights in the areas. Well, okay. Um, well, we're building our name for ourselves. So at the moment, you know, we're 13 strong. There's no, there's no, there's no, <laughs> there's no non-male writers. Well, there's 13 here. Um, and, you know, there's connections with maybe more. We've got quite a few other people who, you know, aren't actively a part of script series, but writing, they'll pop in occasionally or follow support. And they just, they're, they're, a lot of them are just a little bit further along in their careers and don't feel like they, um, need script series right now, but they offer us a lot of support. So that's, so that's back in 2019. Well, you started it back in 2019 with the intention of uh, meeting once a month and having the Facebook group. And then the world changes in 2020. Um, how does the, the script sirens exist? What form does it exist now? How, how are you meeting up? How often? How are you giving advice and critiques to each other? Towards the end of um, uh, of 2019, we decided that... Um, one of the things we wanted to do was try and get it, get slightly people in to talk to us as a group at our monthly meetings through mostly through my connections from when I was working uh, in production previously to um, speak to us to help us advance. And one of the main pieces of advice we kept going getting back was um, 
you know, write your spec script, uh, get that really good, but also get something on in the theatre or radio, get yourself, um, get yourself that first in, in order to get, get an agent. And so as that wasn't happening, wasn't picking up, I decided to do it myself and do it ourselves um, and apply for Arts Council funding to put on a theatre showcase where everybody would had a script that was about eight to ten minutes each and we'd show them and we'd invite um, industry people both from TV, theatre and radio and agents to try and uh, display particularly script writing because quite a few of our writers are successful writers in other areas um, like novelists etc um, but this was uh, this our writing group is sort of for all ability all different types of writers coming together to improve script writing or break into script writing and when I um so that's when it started so we just started talking about okay well we're gonna put on our own show end of um end of 2019 and by March we were very much in a shape to get going with it all planned and booked in uh for June and then the world fell apart <laughs> and I I sort of bunkered down for about a month of just a uh, slight just a slight a slight despair and very much just you know that first lockdown where we thought it was going to be a couple of weeks and it was just rest and watching TV and eating lots of junk and not doing anything but a few weeks in and that's still not going away I sort of reapproached the script sirens and we were meant to have our monthly meeting so we had it over so we had our first one over Zoom and we started chatting and then. And we sort of we seen these. There was BBC was doing a couple of competitions about shorts and making our own thing. But again, everybody was still really not just not feeling all that um, mentally healthy with the pressure of everything that was going on outside, plus compounding issues of sort of you know teaching children from home for some of us and medical issues for other uh, for others, etc. And even you know just a pandemic is a lot <laughs> to process for anybody who hasn't got anything else going on with it. So. Yeah, when it we started meeting over Zoom, we came up with our first project of lockdown, which was um, a web series uh, written during the pandemic, but not a, about the pandemic. Um, and we did it all in different media. So one uh, was designed and originally uh, broadcast on Instagram TV and the rest all on YouTube. So then we sort of, because of that and the, the attention that grew, we sort of became both this group that meets and now we meet weekly over zoom rather than monthly because we have so many projects going on we're both you know this uh, group that exists to support each other to send writing to but now we're also a sort of little production company as well not that we're fully set up as a production company at the moment we're still sort of, we're still sort of classed as a, cl- a collaborative club as the only uh, you know only income we've had so far was our arts council funding which all was um, spent as planned on the script siren screen project now as a writer what benefits are there for you in getting feedback and critique and general thoughts from from other writers writers that you know are probably no more successful than you are just a general different voice how important is that I think it's so important uh, I mean First and foremost, I am terrible when it comes to um, proofreading my own work. I, I used to work as a proofreader, can do it for other people's work, but I just, I just can't see it in my own writing. I read over it, I read it again, I try doing the, you know, the out loud where you read each word of your own piece to yourself like that. 
and I still miss typos I read what I think I've written or what I wanted to write not necessarily what's there so very basically that is fun that is and you think you need another eye there but it's also very useful to have other people's to read your work especially if they're your target audience so depending on what piece of writing I'm looking at I tend to I will tend to ask different members of the group for their opinion so um we've got Alex who's really really into soap writing and I'm prepping for a soap uh a soap writer's job interview at the moment so she's been very useful with that and then Holly's really into sci-fi and um and then like uh, Carmen is uh, Carmen and Annabelle are really into comedy and uh, Kaylee has a, a background in music journalism uh, so it's nice to you get if you, you can get a sort of you know a feel of your own audience and then if you're struggling with something or you're not entirely sure that you've communicated something thoroughly sometimes having somebody just say back to you oh I I don't get it or what's happening here um is very useful because you've got the whole backstory in your head and you don't if you haven't communicated that clearly to an audience it's not necessarily the audience's fault but your own so you started in lockdown with um the series of of different stories put out there on the internet in loads of different ways that weren't about the pandemic and then you moved into do um into a horror series this has just come out it's it's um, multi-parts, six parts um, uh, through Acast and through Google and all of that. And um, tell us more about that then, Scarlett. Um, so that was, uh, so that was really, again, the theatre, our original Theatre Showcase got cancelled. So then we started to try and put it back on when restrictions um, eased over the summer and autumn period. But it became very quickly obvious that... Um, that you know that it wasn't going to be happening anytime soon and theatres was just one of those things that were never getting reopened so we wanted to say well how else can we we didn't want to take the same stories as we'd already written for the theatre because I think sometimes uh, I don't like shoehorning one unless you've really put a lot of time and thought I don't like shoehorning one medium into the the other pieces we've written were for theatre um but I was thinking what can we do what can we put out that worked during lockdown and for me um I I really really into podcasts and uh there was it was just a thought of like well can we make audio plays then and within the conversations we had as a group it was funny about what different things scared us so whilst the anthology is horror themed the type of horror and the themes within each play and even the genre of each of the of each of the pieces is different well when you're writing horror i guess it's quite an open-ended question but i I don't speak to too many horror authors on the show so i'm not uh that that I, i haven't really got my head around how to make something scary how are you writing something scary well (laughs) <laughs> that for me, I think it really depends what you find scary. So the idea of me, for me personally, for my piece that I wrote, as I thought about what scares me, fascism. Uh, so I wrote my piece um, set in a sort of dystopian version of Britain 
very much in response to what was happening uh, in Poland and happening in America with women's reproductive rights. And that, for me, uh, the imagining of being in a similar scenario, that, that's what scares me. Um, uh, for me, I was very much based on my, I, I read uh, I read an article that was going on, and one of the things that really struck me is that um, people could be questioned, arrested, and possibly even imprisoned for having miscarriages that they suspect like early on miscarriages that they suspected might actually be abortions or you know that women deliberately hurt themselves in order to have an abortion um and that really struck me and it hit me quite hard because in 2017 I had an early term miscarriage that I hadn't even been aware that I was pregnant at the time so I was thinking well what if I was living in one of those countries and that happened to me now how would I how would I experience that and how would I defend myself and the absolute amount so that 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 to me was terrifying but then we've got more traditional uh, scary things so we've got um a serial murder in one of the plays another one is uh, based around a cult what scared our different writers was quite interesting and how horror could be used in different genres And that is it for this week's episode of the show. Thank you to Scarlett for coming on. Do me a favour, listen to the brilliant six-part horror audio series, Siren Screams. It's a free podcast. Find it on Spotify, Acast, Google. You can probably find it wherever you're listening to this. And if that writing group sounds up your street, uh, you can probably join. Uh, Just give them a Google, look them up. Script Sirens. I'm sure they would love to have you. Now, next week, we'll chat to Jeff Lindsay on the show. He's the author who wrote the books that became uh, the show Dexter, everyone's favourite neighbourhood serial killer. He'll be on talking about his brand new Riley Wolf thriller uh, on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. In the meantime, let us know what you think. Uh, You can get in touch with us using the contact form at writersroutine.com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. We are at writerspod there. And I'll see you next week with Jeff Lindsay. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.